Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. Again, I'm honored to be able to host these conversations and stay really honored again and excited to be able to jump into a conversation topic that we haven't addressed up to this point, and that's really thinking about mental health in the military. So today, I'm honored to be able to host three guests for a conversation about or mental health, the military, and the unseen wounds of war. The first guest I'd like to introduce is Stephen Elliott. Stephen is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, having served there as an Army Ranger in 2004. He's also the author of War Story, a memoir in which he details his journey to and from the battlefield and the reality of the unseen wounds of war. It's a really great book, very compelling story and an important narrative, which I've read. So I encourage you to check it out if you haven't read it already. Also did want to mention that Stephen is someone who has been featured on ESPN, NPR, NBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and others in the hope that he and his family's story would help others also find hope and healing. He's someone who's a native of Kansas. He's currently an entrepreneur and resides in Southern California with his wife and two daughters. And someone I was able to connect with a few years back, glad that we had this opportunity to reconnect. I wanted to make sure I welcome Stephen Elliott to the Adyar podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. The next guest I'd like to introduce is Ellsworth Tony Williams. Tony is someone who is a combat army veteran having faithfully and honorably served in active duty in the army for 24 years, eight enlisted and 16 years commissioned. This includes service during Desert Storm, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. He's also someone who's received numerous awards including a bronze star and three meritorious service medals. One thing that I really admire about Tony is that after he retired in 2007, he actually decided to rebrand himself and get a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling from Troy University. Upon graduation, he founded and is currently the president and CEO of Veterans Counseling Veterans, and he continues in this really important work. I will mention as an aside, I watched one of the recent updates that he did, and I was really encouraged by the, the energy that he brought as he was dancing to Pharrell's Happy at the beginning of that update, and I thought that was, that was great just to be able to lead off in that way. I want to make sure I welcome Tony Williams here to the Adyar podcast. Thanks for being here. And the third guest who I'd like to introduce is Dr. Barbara Rothbaum, um, who is the director of the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program and also the director of the Trauma and Anxiety Re Recovery Program at Emory. 
She holds numerous titles and uh, has lots of honorary titles as well, but I did just want to mention some of her work that she has also been involved in. Dr. Rothbaum is someone who specializes in research on the treatment of anxiety disorders, particular PTSD. She's also been able to contribute to lots of conversations and to um, reports around policy as well, and has briefed the Department of Defense, the Veterans Association or Veterans Affairs, the House and Senate Committees on Veterans Affairs, and the Armed Services Committees on the Institute of Medicine's report around some of these topics. Dr. Rothbaum is someone who has been studying PTSD treatment since 1986, and she has also developed, tested, and disseminated some of the most innovative and effective treatments available for PTSD, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. She's authored numerous scientific papers, has also published over 11 books, the most recent of which is entitled PTSD for the General Public, PTSD, What Everyone Needs to Know. So again, someone who has a long-standing long-standing history and effort and effectiveness in this work, and we're grateful to be able to welcome Barbara to the program today as well. Thank you for having me. Of course. So as my listeners know, I always just like to start out checking in with everybody to see how everyone is doing at this moment as we are at the end of February of 2022. And with everything that we continue to experience, I think it's just helpful to kind of center our conversation there as a launching point. So I'm going to go in reverse order of our introductions and actually start with Barbara. I'm very excited. So we've pivoted back and forth with our veteran program over COVID. Um, at the beginning, we went telemedicine. We came back um, with the Omicron variant and the surge in January. We went telemedicine today again this week. We brought people back in person again. So it's just exciting to have veterans on site again. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I know that's been quite a journey. Um, and just from what I've seen, from some of the work you all have done, it seems that you pivoted pretty well in terms of really getting the message across to let people know the services were available and still highly effective. But I'm sure it's exciting to come back in person. Yeah, no, they are. And we we gather data on everything we do. And we're so thrilled that our telemedicine treatment is just as effective. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to have people on site. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Tony, how about you? How are you doing these days? I wasn't. I don't know if you're going to dance for us as well, but... <laughs> I think you're on mute. I said, where's the music playing? So <laughs> I'll tell you the one thing about, because I'm basically introverted. And this COVID forced me to become more extroverted with my virtuals. Mm. You know, so it wasn't for that, you would not have seen me on it. So most of the stuff I've done has been in person, which, which really is only people who are there know it exists. And because of the Omicron and stuff going on and all this stuff going on, it forced me to do all my events virtually, which now has increased the people that see what I do. Mm. So that in one side of it, um, I've seen some positive as far as that reaching more people and stuff like that and accessible. As a nonprofit, it's, it's definitely more economical to mm. do it uh, virtual versus these uh, these events that we're going at. So that's a good thing here. I'm still trying to monitor how COVID, and I'm hopefully these guests can talk about it a little bit, is how has COVID affected suicide? You know, that's my name, bread and butter, when it comes to the military and veterans. I mean, because, mm. you know, um, I have everything I know is anecdotal. Is anecdotal, and if you see some reports that come out from the DOD, you've seen something different. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm definitely curious to hear from these, these guests here. Have they seen any kind of differences when it comes to COVID mm -hmm. uh, in the veteran space? Yeah, that's definitely a topic we should definitely make sure we loop back to. Um, encouraged to hear that, you know, in a way, the silver lines that you've been able to expand your reach in some ways as well. So I applaud you for taking advantage of that and and being flexible again, just in the moment that we're in as well. So, Stephen, how about you? How are you doing these days? 
Uh, doing okay. Um, we had the last couple of years have been certainly what they've been for, for all of our society. And, you know, we decided to throw in a, a move from the Seattle area to Southern California, just because we thought that'd be fun um, in the midst <laughs> of all that. And um, so, yeah, it's been a weird, the last couple of years have been, um, you know, our, our, the problems that we've had to, to deal with in our household, you know, I'll, I'll take those any day over the ones that a lot of people have had to struggle with. So mm. um, I found myself much more inward focused than I would like to be just in terms of, you know, navigating a move and navigating changes and enterprises I'm engaged with that are um, kind of resolving and, and um, yeah, really grateful. I mean, our household is, uh, is healthy and um, you know, we're, we just feel really fortunate to be where we're at and um, yeah. And, and I don't know if excited is the right word, but certainly, you know, ready to, to whatever extent we can, you know, continue to re-engage in this conversation. So mm-hmm. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Excellent. Again, sounds like a lot of flexibility and some, uh, I, I don't know what the right word is, bravery maybe on your part, moving it in the middle, but it sounds like things are. <laughs> it, it worked out. Yeah, we, we started the process prior to uh, COVID um, mm-hmm. and then I continued that process. And um, yeah, again, it's, you know, you know, moving is what it is, but yeah. um, it's uh, self-imposed and, you know, we're, we're on the other side of it and, and right, right. Uh, to be here. So, yeah. That's wonderful to hear. And I appreciate it, you know, the way that you put everything in context to even just acknowledging what challenges you you have had, but also knowing that there are lots of other things that a lot of people have gone through on yeah. Clear. And I think that ties into a lot of the stories and the work that you all do as well. Um, so before we kind of jump into some of the, you know, the meat of the conversation, so to speak, I also wanted to give you all a chance just to talk about the work and the initiatives that you're involved in. Um, so Stephen, actually, if you could start out just telling us a little bit about the Elliott Fund and what you all do um, as an organization. Yeah, um, the Elliott Fund was originally established uh, in conjunction with uh, the publishing of War Story a few years ago. Uh, really, um, there wasn't, I'd like to say there was a, a lot of strategic thought put into it. There wasn't. Mm. Um, it was simply established to be a pass-through entity for uh, any book proceeds, because uh, that was one of the things that uh, for us we felt was important was that if there was any financial resources that the, that book produced, we wanted to be able to channel those to other nonprofits that were doing good work in, in the veteran space. So really, that was that's all it was initially. And then, um, you know, we've continued to, to kind of use that as a platform, really, of connection between resources and other organizations. Um, and right now, um, the main work that we're doing, uh, we being my wife and I, my wife, Brooke, um, is we're working um, closely with uh, a film producer named uh, Beth Dolan, who's uh, in the in the finishing stages of post production for uh, a documentary film called Stranger at Home uh, that uh, really chronicles the uh, it chronicles the story of um, a military mental health whistleblower named Dr. Mark Russell, who's a former naval commander and who in the early stages, uh, you know, pre Iraq invasion. Uh, was uh, adamantly raising concerns uh, as to the gaps between the DOD's stated policy for mental health and the actual practical gaps for how uh, that was applied. And so um, that documentary, which uh, we've, we've seen the rough cut of it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty compelling. Mm. Um, we'll be using whatever resources we have in our platform um, to, uh, to advocate both for that film and, and for um, policy changes within the active duty component um, to to help curtail uh, the military mental health epidemic. So that's mm. that's kind of what we're up to right now. Mm. That's really encouraging to hear that you've been able to continue in those efforts and 
some of these important topics. I'll be curious, you know, as we go through even with some of uh, Dr. Barber's experiences, to maybe even comment on some of the things that she's seen in her perspective as well. Um, before we get there, though, Tony, I wanted to give you also a chance to talk a little bit about uh, veterans counseling veterans um, on the heels of what Stephen has just mentioned as well. So, uh, so I found the Veterans Council of Veterans in 2014, and um, as I actually after I interned at the, at the Veteran uh, VA, and what people don't understand and don't know, it's not a slide on them, but 90% uh, of the providers aren't veterans, and I realized that when I was when I was getting the, my interns and, and, mm -hmm. and talking to them. So that's why I came with the idea of veterans. Why can't Veterans Council Veterans? Mm. And it's a Veterans Council Veterans is a, is a nonprofit that consists of veterans and spouses of veterans who are in the mental profession. It doesn't matter. It's almost like a, uh, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a clinical psychologist or, 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 or LCSW or LSMHC. And, and so I just want to get away from the identity. We try to get away from the identity of being a social worker and being more of a veteran that's helping versus I'm a social worker or I'm a psychologist. That's to me is what's breaking. We got, I wanted to break through. Veteran Council of Veterans, its primary mission is, is suicide prevention, veteran suicide prevention. And we do this with, with the model we call TEAM, which is teaching, education, advocacy, mentorship, and services in and, and, and many arenas. And so, uh, and we try to take the risk factor and turn it into a, a protective factor. One of the things that, we're, that, that is different from us is that people don't understand that, don't realize that over about 70% of the military and the veterans have a, have a relationship one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, you know, you lose that when you're in the service, they get as much services you get. But once you get out of the service, it's just a veteran that gets all the services. And so I wanted to make sure I, I, I include them in everything I do when it comes to that. So we focus not just now on the veteran, but we also focus on the family as well. Since the family, since the veteran. So those are the things we have. And we're coming up, we're coming up next week. We're doing a, a veterans family mental wellness workshop for the veterans families. We're going to do a military sexual trauma workshop and we have a summit as well. Military veterans uh, suicide prevention summit, our fourth one. And it's going to have faith peers, mental health, and, and, uh, and the community. You need all four to have any kind of debt. Veteran suicide is a national problem, but it has a, a local solution. You cannot nationalize it, you can't franchise it, and you can't monopolize it. You have to look at the local community to really fix it. You can't take something, like right now, one of my biggest con you know, concerns is that whenever you have a crisis, you call this number, it's a VA number, but they're all in Caladega. Okay, why do I gotta call Caladega? If my house is on fire down the street, why do I call the fire department in New York to put my house out? So we got we to get away from that. That, that, that mm. That's the thing I'm trying to push as much as we got to start involving, involving more of the community when it comes to suicide mm -hmm. prevention, intervention, and postvention. So that's my, that's my thing. Thanks, Joe. Of course. And thanks so much for that description. I mean, it's, it's encouraging and to hear the, the holistic approach that you're using as well. Um, and again, just the innovative concept of veterans counseling veterans and how you've been able to make progress in that as well. Um, Barbara, also to pivot to you and have you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the programs that you direct as well, if you could. Right, so I direct the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. We are funded by philanthropy in a large grant from the Wounded Warrior Project. So mm -hmm. many, many thanks to WWP. We can bring in post 9-11 veterans from all around the country. We bring them into our place in Atlanta, set them up in a hotel near our clinic, and we give them a lot of treatment every day for two weeks. It's called an intensive outpatient program. They get a lot of individual therapy. We're we do evidence-based therapy. So that's therapy that has been shown in studies to be helpful. We treat PTSD, depression, anxiety. We've got specific tracks for substance use or misuse. We've got a track 
for mild traumatic brain injury. We've got interventions for pain. We teach everybody yoga. They can have acupuncture for pain. So we've, we've, we've got family surfaces. Even before COVID, we involved the family via telemedicine because we really want people to eat, breathe, and sleep the program while they're here. Um, but we involved the family via telemedicine. And we everything is at no cost to the veteran. So transportation, housing, they get more therapy in two weeks than most people get in an entire year. Mm. And it's effective therapy. So I don't know if people know there's a lot of dropout from PTSD treatment. I mean, mm. PTSD is a disorder of avoidance, and that means therapy too. We have a 93% completion rate. Wow. So I really, I've been treating PTSD my entire career. I think this is the way to treat it with the IOP. So every Monday, we've got a new cohort of veterans. It's a two-week program. So any given time, we've got people that it's their first week and their second week. So they've got a cohort of veterans who are also doing the hard work, and they've got our whole team. We've got psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, neuropsychiatrists. We've got veteran outreach coordinators. We've got everybody mm-hmm. who's trying to help them and give them evidence-based treatment. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm very proud of it, and I'm happy to talk about it because I think we're one of the best-kept secrets in the nation, and we don't want to be. We want to yeah. be full every time. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I uh, really, again, appreciate the work that you've been doing. And it's, it struck me as you've been talking, some of the overlapping themes between the three of you in terms of the efforts and the ways that these aren't narrow efforts in one specific pocket, but just trying to make sure that it really is something that's broad and across the board. I mean, we'll definitely dig into that a little bit more, but I was just actually going to open it up, um, not planned, a little bit of an audible, but I'm curious if you all have thoughts as you've all heard each other talking about each other's programs and and efforts in a sense, either in terms of um, things that resonate with you or questions that you have for each other. So I'm just gonna, I'm going to leave that. I know that's a little wide open, but I'm, gonna, I'm just curious um, how you all have been kind of listening into each other and processing what you all have shared. Well, I, I want to respond when you know Tony, you were talking about that we we have to pay attention to veteran suicide and agree totally. And so ours is a clinical program, but I'm a I'm a clinical researcher too. So we gather data and we look at it to make sure what we're doing is working. Mm-hmm. And with um, one of our sister sites, we combine data. And we were able to see when you treat the PTSD effectively, the suicidal thoughts decrease. So it, we were we felt that the word we hear most often, it sounds dramatic when I say it, but when we send people back to their families, the word we hear most often is transformative. You know, mm-hmm. you've given us, you know, our Tony back, uh, you know, but I, it's uh, so my approach is treat what's wrong. I mean, but that's also within our whole holistic and family approach. And that that's helpful. Mm, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, I heard two things. You know, um, one from one from each of you, which uh, really, you know, I, I completely agree with. Uh, you know, one, um, just uh, Dr. Rothbaum just talking about PTSD being a, a, a if you use the word disease, but a disorder of avoidance. Uh, I mean, that's essentially. Um, I think that could have been the subtitle of my story. <laughs> oh, was uh, was that? I mean, when mm. I look at the the resources that I had at my disposal, um, but the, the, the narrative of my own pride and, and my own avoidance in terms of, you know, not wanting to really, uh, risk hope, um, uh, uh, that like, what if I put myself out there and I pursue, you know, these various modalities of treatment that I didn't understand and I was still broken, well, then what, 
um, uh, that was part of it, but, but also then the, the piece of, you know, not feeling that I even deserve to be well. Um, and, and so I think for me, part of, part of what I experienced was certainly, uh, self-inflicted in terms of avoiding, um, you know, whatever help that there was. Uh, and then Tony, something you said, which I, I, you know, totally agree with is, uh, the, the, the grassroots, you know, up down approach, which, which doesn't preclude, professionals or policymakers. I mean, we need a, a web and a net um, of all sorts of people within the ecosystem. But um, but yeah, you're you're 100 percent right. I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot of counseling sessions that have taken place in bars and probably still do. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe that's OK. Maybe that's that's maybe not where it needs to always stay. <laughs> but um, if that's a piece in the journey, then then so be it. And I think, um, you know, that's that's part of it, too, is how do you get people that are on that journey into a place that, who, who are generally people who are very much motivated by service in the first place. And that's maybe part of the things that are depressing them is now they feel like they're useless. They're not in uniform. They can't do the thing that was meaningful to society anymore. And now they're thinking about suicide. Um, the fact that, you know, them helping others is part of their own healing. I, I think that's, um, that's so good. And that's so encouraging. You know, uh, Stephen and I, and everybody group, one of the things I always, when I talk about the locality and local, when you go to a, a, a community and you ask the best fried chicken, where's the best fried chicken? The people from there, most of the time it's this cranky old, nasty old building, <laughs> right? With you know everything falling down, but it's a long line, right? Because the local people know where the best food is. If you yeah. ask somebody who's not from there, guess what they're gonna tell you? KFC, Popeye's, <laughs> because it's a national brand. But <laughs> PTSD, I mean, PTSD, suicide is so personal. You can't get anything more personal than dying by suicide. And I think that we got to get past that using the same scale of the same way of doing things. If we want to really be effective, we got to start looking at people who are in accessibility. Uh, and and Stephen, you were talking about how we train as, as uh, kind of you know, how we, I, we train as a military. I saw, you didn't say that, but that's what I heard. Is yeah. in the military, we strip away your individuality, right? like wax on the dang floor and we put the you know put the stuff down to take the wax off and we put in your whole new identity with the collective we don't do a good job out reversing that we don't do a good job of taking that same energy we put to make you collective to make you think individually yeah. and so if i was to treat a veteran I, you, you cannot do it individually because we don't think like that mm -hmm. we think collectively we think as a patrol we think it's a squad we think it's a platoon and some of the things that we call about, we call suicide over there is considered heroic action, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm walking down and we're in a patrol and I see an IED or a bomb in the road, you know, I want to protect the rest of my people. So mm -hmm. I don't think and I go and I jump on it. Well, no one says suicide, right? Because then that's considered heroic. You get a medal and maybe a medal of honor. Yeah. But when you take those same things that are considered great over there and you, mm -hmm. and you transpose them over here, there are now problems. You can no longer, being hypervigilant over there is good, right? You never yeah. know who's going to take you anywhere. So being high vision, looking, who's up on the corner? Hey, you looking at me, you saw? That's part of what it takes to survive over there. That you cannot use the same things you learned that kept you alive over there, over here. So I'm just saying that we got to look at, and I mean, talk about the families. It's a whole other dynamic. But as, a, as an individual, we, we cannot keep using the same model of an individual, individual, and then try to think it works with us because we weren't trained that way. We were trained like like uh, like the Borg on Star Trek. You know, we were trained as the collective, the collective, and that's what we were used to trying mm. to get part of that collectiveness and not that individual. I want to be rich, so I just thought I wanted to relay that to 
when Steve was talking about beating at a bar, or some, some of the most effective people for suicide is not somebody with a PhD or 3,000 letters on the end of the name, but it's a regular Joe that sits there and say, hey, man, let's talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's that's my spill with uh, uh, my comment when it comes to suicide. Mm. Yeah, really well said. And I appreciate you pulling out those those nuances uh, for us as well. I'm curious for the the, uh, the other two as well, like how you would um, react to that, because it seems that there's also this tension between the individual, but you've also all alluded to the importance of the relationships as well and the family. So how how have you seen your experience? How do people walk through that practically? Still try and get the attention they need individually, but now within the context of other relationships, not necessarily in the context of a military relationship. Any uh, insights or experiences you all want to share? I can talk for four days about it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try not to. Um, and, I, and I'll focus in my comments right now on PTSD, but I know we're not just talking about mm-hmm. PTSD. I, I think we tend to believe our stories. And if it's something that's associated with a traumatic event and there's a lot of avoidance and we don't even want to think about it, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want anything to remind us of it, then we can't possibly think differently about it. And so what what we do is help people confront those memories, confront the triggers and do it in a therapeutic way that then they can take it out and they can look at it. So they might be thinking, um, you know, what happened? I was, you know, Jones got killed. It was my fault because I was driving when we hit the IED. And if you can't go there, that's what they carry with them. When we work on it, they might be able to change how they think that, it sucks that Jones got killed, but as we went through it, I did everything I could. There were eight eyes on the road. It was the insurgent planning that IED. And so once we can help work them to have a different perception of themselves in the world, I mean, it's kind of what you guys were saying too, then that we translate it completely by involving the family, by involving um, other people to help work on their relationships as well. So it's a, you know, I guess it's a chicken and an egg and you mm-hmm. start wherever you start. Um, uh, so a lot of times we'll start with the individual mm-hmm. work and helping people see it more clearly. And then I, I think that can help with some of the relationships. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like stepwise in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, Stephen, I'd be curious in your, in your own experience too, because you alluded to avoiding the hope in a sense and po- because of possible disappointment. Is there a way that you can recall that you were able to make that transition? Was it also similarly focused on you as an individual? Were there other processes or approaches um, that were helpful in, in your situation? Well, I mean, for me, it was just a question of like how bad it'd have to get before you wanted to get, get help. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, it, it took um, the point at which, you know, my wife knew a lot more what was going on with me than I did. Um, and it was the point at which, um, you know, after X number of years saying, I want a divorce. And then it's at that point, you know, which, you know, that was 13 years ago and we're married and, you know, that's, that's, you know, a really, you know, blessed part of the story. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you just sort of find yourself sitting in a place that you never intended to go. At no point did you look at the map and say, yeah, I, I want to go to moving out and living with two other single guys after having been married and having a house that kind of feels like a step backwards, you know, mm-hmm. no offense to that, but that was not where I was trying to go. And then, you know, it took a pretty, yeah, it took a pretty thick, you know, metaphorical two by four for me um, to sort of wake up and realize maybe if I keep doing or not doing the same thing, I'm going to keep getting the same thing. 
Mm. And if that's what I want, then fine. But if I want a different result in life, then uh, maybe I'm going to have to try something else. And, and I didn't have, I didn't have a, you know, for me, it was partly a, um, uh, it was an absence of context um, because I grew up around um, a lot of, a lot of veterans. My grandfather was a veteran of World War II, um, you know, fought in Italy for a year and a half. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I saw the other side of the heroic, you know, freeing of Europe from, you know, the Germans and realized that, you know, war is hell. And that was something that he carried with him for his life. And mm -hmm. you know, he had a community around him. But for me, like, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder was, you know, that was um, a scary acronym. I didn't know what it meant um, other than uh, it meant that I must be weak um, to be experiencing this. Um, and that's, that's difficult when um, you've come from a military experience, which I think is true for, you know, Anybody who joins, I don't, I don't care if you're, you know, a clerk in the Air Force or if you're an Army Ranger or, or anything in between, um, you join to serve, um, you want to operate from a place of strength, um, and um, you have to be willing to, to do difficult things that, that some other people just aren't willing to do. And so um, then when you find yourself in a place, um, and, you know, certainly the community that I served in, um, that community self-selects for people who just put up with a lot of pain. That's really what it is. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's an all-volunteer force that we have right now, and that was an all-volunteer unit. The only reason you're there getting yelled at and getting put the, through the paces is because you choose to be there. Mm -hmm. And so then having been self-selected essentially for compartmentalizing and focusing and just accomplishing the task, um, I'm not sure if it was you, Dr. Rothbaum, or Tony who said it, but essentially then it's that deprogramming piece to say, hey, it doesn't make any less tough to acknowledge the fact that you're hurt um, and to acknowledge the fact that, hey, it's, you know, we don't, there's no stigma around that with respect to physical wounds. If I get shot, you know, nobody's standing around me on the battlefield berating me for getting shot mm -hmm. um, or making me feel guilty. Even if I did something stupid, they're going to care for me. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, that was certainly a big part of, of, my journey um, uh, within my family. It was, it was, it was essentially how much, how bad do I really want this to get? Cause it's not going in a good direction. And uh, is, am I, am I willing to risk, which in retrospect, the risk was, you know, you see it as this big, but it's really, it's a lot of people who want to help you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, um, it's so much bigger in your mind than it is, is in actuality. So uh, for me, part of that journey was just having a language and a context to not embrace the trauma and have that become who I am, mm. where then I am, that's my sole identifier is I'm a, you know, I'm a wounded veteran of PTSD and that's who I am. That's my business card or something. Mm. But it's to say that, no, that's integrated into part of my experience and I can actually experience growth from that. Um, and I don't have to be stuck in that place. And, you know, that growth, you know, takes a lifetime maybe, but, mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, really well said and really powerful. And appreciate just your honesty and candor um, in that as well. Um, one thing, I mean, I have so many things that came to mind. One thing that did come to mind, which I'll have you and the others respond to as well, is just this, I guess, the aspect of, of choice and volition, which is a whole big, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic. Part of the reason I bring that up, though, is, you know, thinking as a neuroscientist, too, and in terms of what we know about what happens to the brain during certain situations and how 
it can change things and people can get stuck in a certain mindset. And then also thinking about some of the different episodes that we've had, particularly talking about um, mental health uh, needs in youth and things like that. And some of the advice from our clinical psychology experts have talked about just being there for people, but not pushing people to say you have to get help, but knowing that you are there to support them. So I'm curious, you know, Stephen, with everything that you've mentioned and the others as well, how people, especially in military circles and veteran circles, try to navigate that aspect of seeing someone who you want to be able to help to move forward, but then also knowing that, Stephen, as you mentioned, you had to get to a place where, in a sense, you desired to move forward, and it got bad enough, the metaphorical two by four, to say, okay, this isn't a situation that I want to go down the road and just stay in that place. At the same time, and this is probably my neuroscience framework coming to, knowing that there's so much that happens in the brain that keeps certain patterns happening as well. So I don't know if I'm forming this question well, but just trying to get a sense of how how you navigate that in the in your own life and in the lives of those that you love as well. To not push people into treatment per se, but also encourage and try and make that come about. So you all are probably going to articulate that a lot better than I just asked the question, but just, just a thought that came to mind. Well, and I imagine we'll have different answers. So mm -hmm. Emil, a lot of times, and, and our whole program is set up to try to break down the barriers to care. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but a lot of it, I mean, people are saying, how can treatment help? You can't change what happened. And that's what I'm suffering from now is what happened. And so, you know, part of it, from my point of view, is education and letting people know that, yeah, it is, it sucks what happened. But what you're suffering from now is whatever, you know, we'll name it, you know, and got to diagnose it or talk about it. You know, is it PTSD or depression or substance use disorder and that we can treat. Mm. Um, and so letting people know that treatment really does help. And you guys are the best messengers we have. I mean, people who graduated from our program, they're our best PR to tell other mm. veterans you got to do this. It helped. And, you know, Stephen, like you, most of our folk, well, I don't know if it's most, a lot of them are there because their wives or husbands are saying, you got to get help or I'm out of here. Or, or sometimes moms and dads, you're not the same person that you were. You got to do something different. Mm. Yeah. yeah I, I can tell you, um, my wife's a retired law enforcement officer. And she's the reason why I got into counseling because she was in charge of the domestic violence piece. And I bring that because, you know, it, it's, it's uh, and I would keep talking about PTSD. And PTSD is just one, it's just one piece. I mean, it's not the veteran. A lot of veterans who die by suicide and that kind of stuff, it's not the top three. It's the top, you know, it's, it's relationships, it's uh, other stuff. Um, so, so we're focused on PTSD, but there's a lot more that, that encompasses if it's suicide. PTSD is just one of them. And, it starts with the trust factor, and it's so important. When we have all these studies, the number one factor is the therapeutic alliance. Mm -hmm. Do they trust you? Do they feel you care about them? Do you think you share the same belief that they they care they, that they have? And that's the challenge we're in with Federal Council Veterans Council Veterans. Generally speaking, we already come with the trust factor. Right? When we sit down and talk, I don't have to sit there. It's no different me being African-American. If I'm having the George Floyd thing, who do I think is going to more understand the George Floyd thing? You know, and I, that's just the way we are. We're humans. We're not mm -hmm. robots. We're going to go to something that, that we're naturally, my tribe actually, my tribe does not have to look like me. They just have to believe like me. Mm 
Mm. And then we learned that in the military. So it's that trust factor. And because I noticed more uh, than just the individual, even with all the programs, if the family's part of it, if you don't adjust the family, then you really less, you know, you can go be intensive care, uh, intensive uh, treatment and have great, your blood pressure is great, eating great, everything's great. You go home, your wife, my wife's Puerto Rican, you go home and guess what? You're right back to that bad food because we didn't do anything to the other part that you go back to. And that's the same thing with stressors and all that kind of stuff. That the, the, the holistic piece of, so I try, so when I talk to the veteran, I, A, I look at me being like a Walmart. I'm not there to sit there and solve your problem. I'm there to point to you to the aisle with, aisle mm. six. You got a headache? Aisle six, go to the pain, G6, right? You then make the decision which one talks to you. I'm not going to tell you this is the best medicine. I'm going to say go to the aisle, and then you decide when you look at all the medicines, which one is if you feel is the pain you want to try to get, you know, six seconds, mm. 20 seconds, whatever that thing is. So we got to be more to me. And, I, and I, uh, we got it. Mean, for me, from a nonprofit point of view, I'm not the solution. There's other, there's so many other kinds of solutions that may not, may not work. And that's the same thing. I'm going to bring it on here because I'm here, you know, that the uh, different cultures, Hispanic cultures have a different, you know, they are really, really involved in the family. And, and, and if your family's not part of that solution, you're really only shooting a piece of that solution. Mm. And if you're not, and if you don't understand the language, you really got a problem because now you're trying to translate to the, to the, to the family who only speaks, because usually when you get to the second, you know, when you get past the veteran, you, all of a sudden the English language starts getting kind of almost gone, but you still got to find a way to get, if you want to really treat them. So mm -hmm. these are things that I try to face. Uh, and, and I say, I'm just, I'm using that part that everybody understands, but Stephen understands the other, the, the nuances. Stephen was in a range of a time. Okay. Those are badasses. Okay. They have a totally different mentality than a clerk that's counting beans and bullets. Okay. He gets rewarded for compartmentalizing and, 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 the, and the cognitive behavior, cognitive, right? He gets rewarded. If you're a commander and I was a commander, I was a commander and I felt you were going to jeopardize my mission. I don't, I don't have any social determinants. I, that's, I don't care about what it looks like. I care about the mission. If I feel like you're going to jeopardize the mission, you're not going because the mission's number one. If you're a ranger, special forces, those guys, that's like inbred in them. If you're, a, a, but if you're a different kind of the force, again, uh, the clerk, the the um the medics the medics they don't they're not they're not kicked down the kick doors down and snipers and everything else they're about serving and helping people they just want to help so it, that's where a lot of the moral injury comes as well because mm -hmm. if your whole being and belief is about helping people and then you see either you can't save that person that just got, got that was killed or whatever mm -hmm. or if you see a, a family get taken out by the IED we don't we don't even talk about the, the effects of the you know I'm all military intelligence. And so when you sit there and you take a bomb and you take out the whole grid square, that's a whole bunch of generations you just took out. Mm. How are you dealing with that? Mm. <laughs> what are we doing to deal with that, that piece? And that's where the moral injury that Barbara was kind of talking about in the Steve, there's a moral injury piece. Again, my point is that we are, it is too personal to do a study and you look at the study and you only got 10% of the study it, it has one part of the dang population. You know, if I was to do the same study and I had the opposite and I said that, hey, I got a, a medicine that's going to work, but it only works 90% for African-Americans, 10%, we don't know. Would that be evidence-based? Probably not. <laughs> but the reverse, that's just reality. Mm. So, I, so when I look, I look at, I look at the, the, the counseling in two phases, the military and it's nuanced, but then the other, other cultures as well. That's what we got to deal with when we start counseling, not just you being a veteran, being a special operator or whatever, but then if you happen to be Hispanic, Indian, uh, female veteran, 
military service, all that, that also is all a factor that may take more than just a one or two weeks intensive out, outpatient treatment. So I'm just throwing that at that. I'm just trying mm. to let you know that it's not that simple. Yeah. Like people try to make it yeah. out to be. So anyway, yeah, sorry. No, that's great. That's great. Steven, anything you want to react to there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think it, um, I mean, it's, it's certainly multifaceted. It's certainly unique to the individual and the, the context that they bring to the service. You know, if you're, if you're coming, which, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't characterize myself as having lived a traumatized life prior to the military. I lived a very blessed life. But you get to basic training, there's a lot of people there who, you know, it's like, well, why are you here? It's just like, well, I was a drug addict. <laughs> I figured I wanted this to be a good place to clean out. Like, seriously. And so, um, and they're great guys. They're, 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 they're good people within that structure. But then it begs the question, well, what, the, then the weight that is put on your military service is a weight that no organization should bear. Because all it takes is one bad squad leader all it takes is one IED, all it takes is one thing, which the military and or war will throw at you to then demolish your identity, demolish your purpose, um, and then just make whatever you, you, you didn't deal with or didn't even know you had to deal with coming into the military, it just exacerbates that. And um, I think it's, I mean, I guess two other short thoughts. One is it's, it's amazing the mental gymnastics that we can go through to effectively justify the fact that we shouldn't be wounded. Mm. Um, um, the, again, the supply clerk in the FOB who uh, never went outside the wire, uh, but sees, you know, dead soldiers being pulled off the Blackhawk and that devastates them. And they feel guilty simultaneously wounded because they've just been presented with something that we were not designed for, which was war and death simultaneously with the guilt of the fact that, here I am not even getting shot at. Mm. I, I don't even deserve to have whatever it is that I'm feeling. And then it's stuffed. And then you go to the guy who's taking his buddy off the helicopter, who essentially says kind of the same thing, which is, well, this is my job. I'm still alive. Um, Jones isn't. What right do I have to feel poorly about that? Mm. And so, um, and I think a lot of that comes back to, um, it comes back to decades uh, within the military, decades of a broken cultural narrative um, that um, you you have people don't have a context for it. Command structures don't have a context for it. They're scared to death of it um, uh, for 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 some reasons that are good, right? You you you're trying to feel the force to go to war, and I don't have time to talk about people's feelings. I'm sorry. And if 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 that's if that's what so you, so you get this binary response, mm -hmm. which is either um stigma laden you're having a hard time therefore you're not fit to deploy that doesn't work um or it's nothing to see here we're all good um and then those things mount and they build and then you see the op tempo that many people across the force have been asked to endure over the last 20 years and it's staggering the amount of time that people have spent in iraq in afghanistan is just incredible Hmm. Um, and so that's something that we've never experienced, um, you know, in, in America to that degree, as far as, um, that level and that duration of, 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 of combat exposure, um, and war. And so I, I think it is a cultural problem. I think it's a storytelling problem, um, and having space to tell stories and just connect dots 
um, to be able to realize that, oh, like I'm your, you know, yeah, what you went through wherever, um, in Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, Vietnam, um, your house where you were molested or whatever the issue is, what you went through is absolutely 100% unique to you and your set of circumstances and who you are as a person, um, that, that's a unique story. And good news, it's not unique. Mm. Good news is there's so many people who've experienced that and navigated that. And some of those people are people who you look up to and admire, who for whatever reason, um, you know, you just never had the opportunity to hear the darkness of their story. Um, and I experienced that a lot, you know, as I was, you know, coming back, um, just people who, you know, I saw one facet of their military service, just like, oh, you, you flew Cobras in Vietnam. Wow. Wow. You were, you were on the beaches of Anzio. Wow. And then now that I'm not some 16 year old kid anymore, mm. now that I myself have been to war and come home, I get a whole nother facet of their story and I get to see, oh, wow, there, there's a whole nother dynamic that it wasn't just went to war, dust off your uniform, come back and, you know, enter society as a fully functioning adult. Um, there, there's a lot more oftentimes to that. And so I think the more that those stories are told and the more that we can get back to um, changing climates and changing cultures around that story at the point of woundedness, so that it's not a binary response. It's not either you're on the bench um, or you're 100% fit to go face America's enemies. Um, we do that with the physical wounds pretty well, um, and and so that's a uh, that that's a that's something that we have to learn to do a lot better. But 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 it's it's cultural, and I think it's really you know being able to hear and tell tell our stories. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate the way you unpack that and just uh, piggybacking off of what the others had said too. I mean, so many aspects of ways that things have to be personalized both what Barbara and what Tony mentioned but then also just like how we respond in those situations too um and just it seems there's not a lot of gray given no. what you're saying too as one or the other and as Tony mentioned sometimes for a good reason I think as you mentioned as well but sometimes also for poor and detrimental uh, reasons so I appreciate the way you all have pulled those those things out our time is going quickly. This would probably go a whole nother hour, but I did want to give a chance, and Stephen, you've already started to go there already, just to give you all time to actually talk about how do we move things forward? Um, Barbara, I know you've done a lot of work, um, some reports and testimonies and things like that too. There's policy, there's culture that needs to shift. There's the way that veterans can continue to counsel veterans, as Tony has talked about. But if you all could just share what your thoughts are and your goals in terms of moving things forward so we don't just kind of get stuck in this cycle and not to, I mean, that is a theme that we've talked about already, but even in this cycle of some of the challenges that already exist in the military and for veterans. Um, so Barbara, maybe if you wanna lead off with that. Sure, and I mean, and there's so many ways we need to move forward. So, you know, with what you were talking about, Stephen, a lot of the stigma and trying to let people know it's not a weakness. I mean, we, we see it as a form of resilience to go get treatment and mm. to work on it and to, so, you know, trying to deal with the stigma. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm working on treatments. Not every treatment works for everybody, for mm -hmm. sure. And so trying to figure out new treatments, trying to figure out um, so personalized medicine and biomarkers and all of that to try to figure out what's going to work for whom. And we're trying to come up with, so for example, we do a lot of exposure therapy and it works very well, but not for everyone. Mm -hmm. So we're working on augmentation approaches. 
trying to identify early on. I mean, we can pretty much figure by Friday of the first week, we can tell if somebody's on the trajectory to get the full response or not. So we're doing some different things in the second week to try to boost that response. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a lot on the treatment front, but I think we need to do it all because our treatments, we have the very best treatments in the world. And if people won't come forward and say, I need help, can you help me? Then they're not going to help anyone. So we've mm -hmm. got to work on all of it. Yeah, really well said. Stephen, maybe to uh, follow up on what you already started to allude to, but anything that you want to add in terms of how we move move things forward? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it, you know, I think it's multifaceted. I think you know, there's not, you know, certainly not, you know, one single um, objective or, or one single um, initiative. I think it's, I mean, it's that's for the, for me. These conversations are super encouraging because it pulls me out of my own little bubble and, and mm -hmm. just reminds me that there's, you know, for all the things wrong with our systems, um, you know. Uh, I have a system to even complain about, which wasn't in place 30 years ago, mm. right? And, and it's not in place for civilians in many cases. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, that was a realization I had some time ago um, where it was, you know, whatever, whatever administrative friction there was and, you know, seeing a counselor doing whatever it was, it's just like, you know what? There's a lot of people who've probably seen more violence in America than you saw in Afghanistan who don't mm. even have a dysfunctional bureaucracy to turn to. Mm. And so first off, to the extent you can count your blessings um and then you know depending on where you're at in the world you know what can you do about it and um i think the the piece that we're focused on that we feel like you know we're to engage in um is really that um that policy reform uh within the active duty component um in terms of how do we um normalize the fact that um war is not good for the soul and that there's unseen wounds that the sooner we address them and not just force people to stuff them for in some cases 20 years so that they don't miss promotion or they don't miss deployment and then have to deal with it um that's that's criminal in my mind and it's it's, it's stupid um and so um that's that's a lot of what you know our advocacy um in conjunction with storytelling uh is is to try and move the needle from a policy level and within the DOD um, to um, stop weaponizing stigma, um, to um, change policies and change culture that can actually be influential uh, at the point of woundedness and not, you know, years after the fact. Um, you know, there was, um, there was a film made, I think, I think one of the most instructive things culturally is there was a film made that some of you may be aware of um, by John Houston in World War II called Let There Be Light. Um, and you can watch that film, I think, on Netflix. I think mm. it's still on the platform. But in that film, um, he tells the story of, of this, uh, essentially, a, a field hospital that was set up, I think it was in Long Island, um, for folks coming back from, you know, the Pacific and Europe who were experiencing acute trauma um, uh, from, uh, from their experiences. And you watch in 50 minutes in black and white, you watch these, these folks um, have those wounds acknowledged. Um, and you see what, what, how they change in two or three weeks before we send them back to their home. Mm. And it's, um, it's powerful. And it's not to say that those are the, those modalities of treatment, um, or maybe crude, um, but just having those wounds acknowledged within a cohort, like you talked about Tony within community before just being unleashed back in the civilian world is so essential. The night that that film was to be screened, the DOD paid for it. The night that that film was to be screened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, 
It was confiscated by MPs and it was classified until the Carter administration. Wow. Nobody saw it until it was declassified. And that film, which was honest and it was hope-filled, was replaced by another DOD film called Shades of Grey, which essentially the message was, if you're a good red-blooded American, you really shouldn't have a problem, you know, meeting the communist horde dead on. Mm. Um, it's, it's very difficult to watch. It's pandering, um, it's ignorant, uh, it's insulting, frankly. It's almost cartoonish. But all that to say is, whether that was explicit or not, um, that was a film that was made out of a lot of fear based on um, the next threat that we saw towards our nation. And that, that idea permeates. Mm. So for, for us, it's, you know, you don't fix that uh, with one movie or one book or one conversation. Um, but how do you engage to, to shift that narrative back to something that maybe is hard to look at both at an individual and a societal level, because there's a lot of failure mm. um, there's a lot of regret. Um, but there's also a lot of hope. Mm. And so, um, so really that's, um, that's where we feel like, you know, we can engage is in that storytelling dynamic and, and hopefully moving the needle um, with national policy change, knowing that, if all of our hope is based on Congress changing policy, we're, we're in bad shape. And so, um, it, you know, the work um, of, you know, Dr. Rothbaum and Tony and others in the community day in, day out is absolutely essential. Like that's mm -hmm. so encouraging because that doesn't take Congress getting its act together. We mm -hmm. can do that right now in our communities. And so that's super encouraging to me. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for sharing all that. I mean, that's, well, that, that story that you shared about the films, that's, well, I'm still, I mean, just the impacts of that. It also makes me think that we need to do more to highlight um, what Dr. Rothbaum is doing as well. If we can sum, as she mentioned in the beginning, because I mean, that sounds like it was also part of that first film that was just not let out and just the power of that. And Dr. Rothbaum, what you talked about from the effectiveness. So Stephen, thanks for pulling out those, uh, those nuances and just being frank about you know, the realities in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, but also highlighting a message of hope, because mm -hmm. I do think that that's what we need to put out there mm -hmm. is a message mm -hmm. of hope. Mm -hmm. 100% agreed. Tony, you get the last word. Oh, so for me, <laughs> being a military guy and probably NCO, it's not, it's not, let's don't talk about, don't, let's don't talk about it, let's be about it. And the thing is, I want, as far as policy, I want to, I want to replicate what the DOD has and rep and put it on the veterans world. So that includes families. That's why I have this family thing going, okay? That includes family. We got to take what, what worked in the DOD world and, and replicate it in the, in the, in the, and, and it's going to take grassroots, okay? So that's, that's fine with me. If I got to start it, fine. But I think we got to start looking at not just a veteran as being the person you look at, but look at the family as well. Because sometimes you want gun safety, go to the spouse, and they'll, they'll be more likely to accept gun safety than the veteran. All right, but we just mm. stuck on the veteran. And we're trying to convince him that, oh, no, it's good for you. So policy on that, that I keep talking about. Also about the locality, being local, local, local. We cannot nationalize, we cannot, we cannot monopolize. Can a franchise this, okay? You got you to gotta start with the local community, and that's where your funding has to be. Okay, so the funding just can't come from one source and then you try and you have like one or two people covering the whole state of Florida to try to do some kind of outreach. You got to start bringing in the community because mm -hmm. the community is them. We are no longer, people don't understand that when you're a veteran, you're no longer federalized. So when you act, when you try to do something to me, you better make sure you do the same thing to anybody else who's, who's an American citizen. And when I'm a DOD, I'm a federal employee, but as a veteran, I'm an individual. So mm -hmm. if you're not going to take their guns away, you're not going to take my guns away. I'm just saying what I hear. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that. I'm just saying, don't say, I am not a federal 
piece of property. I'm a constituent. So treat us like constituents of your community. That means the county, the state, the city, and the state and federal all have to play a part in mm. taking care of me, not just a federal government. So that's those are the things that I, and, I, and with, with, when I mentioned with Stephen, I agree with that when it comes to, he's, he's a policy guy. I think we have a problem with Congress right now because of two, the two partisan. So it's got to start here at the grassroots where everybody's mm. going to take care of the veteran. Mm. You know, and finally, when I see a, a, a battlefield collided with bodies, I don't sit there and, and start looking at the percentages of who's out there, okay? I just see a veteran out there that's laying out needing her, needing needing care. I don't see if it's a female. I don't see if it's an African-American. I just see a veteran out there that needs help. We need to bring that down to us mm. eventually, where we also see a veteran out there that needs help versus these little these little things they, they put us into that, you know, to try to put us in a box. Mm. So that, those are my, my two things is spend more money to the community. Don't forget the families mm. from the kinds of policies. That's mm. me. Be well about said. it. Don't not just talk about it, but be about it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I know we did talk about hope and for me, just having this conversation gives me hope as well. I mean, in multiple ways, just how frank you all have been about the challenges, but then also the ways that things have moved forward and the ways that we can continue to move things forward. Um, and it's also, I'm grateful that even this conversation is encouraging to you all as you're seeing different pockets of the work um, that's being done. So again, I'm honored that I've been able to, you know, host this conversation to be able to uh, step into this community, if only for a brief moment, but hopefully not for a a fleeting moment and something that we can all continue to be engaged in. Again, grateful to all of you for being here, for the work that you all are doing, continue to do, and just for the impact that's having in so many lives. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank you. you. And thank you for helping us get the word out. Of course.